righty. Praise the Lord. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing good. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing blessed. Thank you for tuning in to the pen of a ready writer. You know, I never say the title much, but that's it, or ready writer for short. How elegant. Well, uh, we're here to talk about Jesus, man. We're here to talk about how much Jesus loves us, which is the gospel. It's what the whole Bible is about, and it's super exciting, man. Uh, I just, you know, I'm to the point in my Christian life where I'm not really concerned with really being interested in anything else that's not uh, Jesus in me and me in Jesus. And what I mean by that is a relationship, right? That's what we're here to do today. We are here to behold Jesus in all of his glory. We are here to experience, to look upon, to identify with the risen Christ, and to receive his washing over us, right? We're not going to add to that washing. We're going to let him wash us, let him kiss us with the kisses of his mouth, Song of Solomon 2 one, excuse me, one, two. So uh, what we're going to talk about on this episode is uh, just a little teaching I put together, uh, something that's just been impacting me a lot and I've been thinking about a lot, is uh, this is going to be called undefiled, all right, undefiled, and we're going to talk about what that means. So really, honestly, let's just jump right in. If you got your Bibles, you can go to Song of Solomon chapter 6. So Song of Solomon, right? It's the greatest song of all time. It's the love story of a groom passionate, passionate, passionate about his bride, right? Uh, The picture that Jesus has decided to reveal his heart is the picture of this. Two people in a perpetual honeymoon state, right? What do you do when you're on a honeymoon? You're all about each other. You are, you know, you're having intimacy. You're sleeping in the bed together. You're doing other things in the bed together, right? That, that, that fiery passion that a lot of people experience in their honeymoon, and unfortunately most marriages kind of dwindle away as the years go on. They don't feel that same fiery passion, a groom for the bride and the bride for the groom. But that is not the picture of Jesus, right? Um, even in the natural, when a marriage fails or marriage does not perfectly sum up the picture of Christ and the bride, that does not mean that marriage itself is bad, right? The true definition of marriage is Jesus and us and us and Jesus. Amen. So, I mean, and let's be realistic here. No marriage can perfectly sum up the the, the picture of Christ dwelling in us and us in Christ. So that's what Song of Solomon is. It's the beautiful love story of a God and his people. That's what he longs to 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 do. That's what his plan was from the beginning. It it uh totally, you know, he wanted to walk with his creation. He he's he has exalted mankind into the Godhead. That's where they were originally. And now we've been put back there through our life union with Jesus. Amen. So Song of Solomon chapter 6 is where we're at. 
And in chapter four is where the the bride finally says yes to the groom. You know, that's a picture of us accepting Jesus. So in chapter six, she's well born again, and she's gone through some stuff, but she's learned how to behold Jesus at this point. And uh, chapter six, uh, people are asking her, where is your beloved? And, and, you know, she declares some awesome things. And then starting in verse four, the groom, even after they're married, starts to just love on the bride uh, even before, you know. It's kind of uh, known socially that most guys really pursue the woman, and then after they get married, uh, you know, the guy's not pursuing anymore, showing affection or love. That's not how Christ operates. That's not how he is. He's actually, he's more in love with you now that you've accepted him. This is kind of what... Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 talk about, you know, Christ showed his love for you while we were yet sinners. And then verse 9, much more than, you know, being saved by his blood, we'll be saved from his wrath. What, the wrath of what? The law, man. The wrath of the law and the wrath of the tribulation. Just any wrath. God is not feeling any wrath towards you. So Song of Solomon chapter 6, he's saying all these things loving on his bride, and in verse 9 is what I want to get to. This verse has just spoken such comfort and such wonderful things to me, and it's the groom speaking, and he says, My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one. She is the, she's the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bear her. The daughter saw her and blessed her. Yea, the queens and the concubines, they praised her. Wow, how just sweet is that? The sweet washing of Jesus' words over our lives. And he declares over you, my dove, my undefiled is but one. I kind of want to pick this apart a little bit. My dove, he, this isn't the first time he calls the, um, the bride the dove. Uh, he... Um, Let's see here. Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 15. This is actually the woman. She says, uh, thou hast dove eyes. but Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Behold, thou hast dove eyes. Excuse me, that's the groom talking to the bride. He says to her, you have dove eyes, meaning, one, you only have eyes towards me, and then two, uh, doves, dove eyes represent grace. And I won't get into why that is. Unfortunately, we don't have time. But that's what the dove represents. Dove represents grace. It represents the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. It's awesome. So he says, you're my dove. The second time he uses this is in Song of Solomon 2.14. He says, oh, my dove that art in the cleft of the rocks in the secret place of the stairs, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice, and, and your, your face is lovely. So this is a term of endearment. He says, my dove, you are, you know, what did Jesus say, right? In, in Matthew chapter 5, he said, the birds, they don't sow and they don't reap, yet your heavenly Father, he takes care of them. You know, Jesus also said, not one sparrow falls to the ground, and my father doesn't know about it. That's the, that's, think about it. If God 
is so intimately and tenderly taking care of the birds, how much more you made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And now that you've accepted Jesus, you're, you're just like him, right? 1 John 4, 17, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. We're not like Jesus in our minds or our bodies, but it's in our spirit. Paul says the inner man, that, that is who we are. We're his dove, right? We're his precious bird that he's taking care of. He takes more care of you than, than a bird, right? So uh, he says my dove, and then he says my undefiled is but one. Undefiled. You know, I looked this up in the Hebrew, and it, I'm not joking, folks. It literally means perfect. It, it means perfect, complete, finished, lacking nothing. That is a bold statement. The groom says to the bride, you're undefiled. You're my undefiled. Wow, what a statement. And this isn't the first time that he has called her this, right? Uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5, back up a chapter into the second verse. The, the bride's having some problems, and, and she's maybe feels like she's not experiencing Jesus, maybe like she once did when she accepted him. And she says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. Wow, he is trying to convince his bride, you are undefiled. You are undefiled in the sight of the Lord. All of this is really perfectly summed up in Song of Solomon chapter 4, back up another chapter. Uh, verse 6, the woman says, I will accept Jesus. Uh, I, will, I will accept him. And then verse 7, um, really really the pinnacle of Song of Solomon, the focal point. It's right in the middle of the book, and it's, it just sums up the whole, the whole mindset of, of Song of Solomon and really God's mindset towards you. He says, after she says yes in Song of Solomon 4-7, he says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Thou art all fair. There's no spot in thee. Tr different translations say, there is no blemish in you. You are altogether lovely. You know, we come to Jesus with our faults, and, and we see faults in ourselves, and, and, and we approach God, and we say, God, you, you don't see anything wrong with me? And he says, no, I don't. I don't see anything wrong with you. You're my undefiled. You're my perfect dove. You're filled with my spirit. I see me in you. That is that 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 is the gospel, right? Colossians 1:27 Christ in you the hope of glory, the positive imagination of being in an exalted state. What's a more exalted state than fellowship with Jesus, than being one with Jesus, than uh living in the Godhead through Christ Jesus? right? There's one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, he's a human being right now in the Godhead, and you, through his humanship, if you want to call it that, that is how you are in this 
this divine circle of friends. It's the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and you. They are waiting on you. They want your input. Uh, grace, right? What is grace? The divine influence upon the heart. You grace Jesus and Jesus graces you. This is what friendship looks like. Amen. So that leaves the question. Okay, uh, you know, maybe for people that are Bible scholars, quote-unquote, or have studied the Word, they say, okay, that is uh, this one tiny little book in the Old Testament, Brock, about, you know, we, we don't even know if it's about Jesus and us. There's no way that just reading these verses about how you're undefiled proves that you're perfect in the sight of the Lord. And you know what? I'll agree with you. So let's go over to the New Testament and prove this out. Because that's how you read the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament under the, under the scope and the understanding and the mindset of Jesus. Uh, that's what the Old Testament's for. You are looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. That's, you know, he said, you look for life in the Scriptures, but the Scriptures, they testify of me. He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures from uh, Moses to the prophets. That's Genesis to Malachi, and that's in Luke 24, if you want to go check that scripture out. And the other one was uh, John 5, 39, I believe. So head over to chapter 10 of Hebrews. That's what we're going to be looking at. Um, Hebrews is just, I mean, I'll just put this bluntly. If, if Hebrews isn't in like your top five favorite books of the Bible, I'll say you don't understand the full gospel. You can't. Like Hebrews and Romans, if you can understand Hebrews and Romans, um, you'll have a good foundation of grace, right? Your heart will be established in grace. Hebrews uh, 13, I think that's 9. And uh, Hebrews is all about how the Old Testament sacrifices could never cleanse your conscience. It could never make your your mind pure, and make you yourself pure. That's what chapter 9 is really the focal point, you know. He talks about the sacrifices were done over and over and over, year after year. But it, but in contrast, uh, 10 times in the book of Hebrews, it says, but Christ died once and for all, right? It says, you are eternally redeemed. What does that mean? You're redeemed until the next time that you sin? No, you're eternally redeemed. But we're going to get into all that. So in Hebrews chapter 10, I hope you found it. In verse 10, it says, By the will which we are sanctified, that means set apart, uh, made holy, really. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He's saying that we've been set apart by what Jesus did on the cross, his, the offering of the body. Uh, verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, check this out, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices of, of animals and stuff, they'll never take away sin. But verse 12, we're, we're just chucking along here. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he's not continually doing it. God the Father isn't getting mad, and then Jesus the Son has to calm him down. No, it says in Isaiah 53, I think it's uh, verse 9 maybe, it says that God was satisfied at the travail of Jesus' soul. 
God, the payment of Jesus was enough. It's over, done with. There, there's nothing to add to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not Jesus and your repentance. No, God forgives you regardless if you asked or not, and he's actually already forgiven you 2,000 years ago at the cross. And if you really want to go a step further, he already forgave you before the sacrifice of Jesus because Jesus, Revelation 13, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Amen. I'm really going to dive into that concept on another uh, podcast, but let's jump back in here. Uh, but this man, after he, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down because it's finished. You, that's what you do. When you sit, you're done. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. That's an Old Testament um, reference. I think Isaiah 66, maybe 2. And then verse 14 is what we're really getting at. For by one offering... What offering? The offering of Jesus, right? By one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified, them that are set apart. Well, that's crazy. How can you read the Bible? How can you read this right here? For by the offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. How can you read that and, and, and really agree I don't know about you folks, but I'll be honest about myself. I'm not perfect in my mind. I, I you know, I, you've, you do not have a spotless mind in your flesh mind. Your body's not perfect. Your body's got blemishes. Your body's got pimples. Some of you are just plain ugly. <laughs> Amen. You got a face only the Lord could love. I'm just joking, but... We are not perfect in our minds, and we are not perfect in our bodies. Well, how can this be? Um, if, you, if you've never listened to my teaching on spirit, soul, body, I believe it's episode number two. You should go check it out. It'll explain that you are a spirit, you have a mind, and you live in a body. Another great, awesome, wonderful teaching on that. Andrew Walmack has a four-part series titled Spirit, Soul, Body. Google that. YouTube that, man that will set you on the right track. And he talks about some of these same things. But you are perfect. And where are you perfect? Perfect in your spirit. The reason I wanted to do this episode, this teaching, was because, man, um, I, I read that verse in uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 9. I read that verse, and I just, that word undefiled, man, the Holy Spirit really just, made that stick out so prominently and I thought about what really really um, plunged me into the to the depths of the waterfalls of God's love what was it that set me on that course the grace of God obviously the message of God is no longer imputing my sins he's no longer getting mad at me when I do wrong ever, right? Isaiah 54, verse 9, I'll never be angry with you. I'll never rebuke you. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their sins to their account, right? 
So that really, the, the message of grace just opened me up. And I was already in love with the Lord. I already loved the Lord. Um, I hadn't been under the bondage of the law for too long, so I really didn't experience that much wrath that a lot of people do. But after that, after I found out that God was no longer imputing my sins to me, I found out that my spirit was perfect. And I got to tell you, folks, this revelation, now that I'm thinking about it, the revelation of how when I accepted Jesus, it wasn't like Jesus came into my life and my spirit. No, it is he, he, he threw out my life and replaced it with the life of God, right? It is not I that lives, but Christ that liveth in me, Galatians 2.20. It's not you got your life, you know, think about it like if you had some water and then you had some Gatorade. It's not, and if Jesus is the Gatorade and you're the water, it's not that the Gatorade is mixed in with the water. No, the water has been thrown out and the Gatorade is now in the, in the cup. I hope that illustration makes sense. Your life has been replaced with the righteousness of God, with the wisdom, with the knowledge, with the love, the compassion, the gentleness, and even the faith of God, right? That's a, that same verse, the uh, Galatians 2.20, the life that I live now, I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, not my faith. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you just have a mustard seed of faith, a mustard seed of faith in what? Your ability to believe? No. If you can believe two things, that God is not only willing, but that he's able, then all things will be possible to you. If you can believe, Jesus, you can heal this person. So I'm going to lay hands on them, and it's going to be you on the inside of me healing this person. If you can believe that, you see what a difference that is between believing uh, believing that and then the other side is, okay, I'm going to lay hands on this person. You can't heal a fly in yourself, in your flesh, your mind, and your body. You can't heal anybody. You can't raise people from the dead. You can't bless people like that, but Christ on the inside of you can do that. It's his life. Your life is gone away. That old life that you had, it is dead. It's dead and your new life, which is Christ, is dead to the power of sin. This, what I'm saying right now, reframes the whole Bible. This is, now you can read Romans chapter 6 where it says, you're dead to the power of sin. That's a heavy statement. That's a heavy statement. You're dead to the power of sin. That literally means sin has no authority over you and in your life. Yet most of us are, you know, most people are still caught in sin. Why? It's because they're living out of their old life. They're trying to take a dead man, their old dead man, and dress it up in manners. If you took a dead person and you sat him at the table, you can't teach a dead guy table manners. That's not how it works. Jesus isn't interested in behavior modification. Jesus is interested in you discovering him on the inside of you and how he loves to dwell in you, how you are his resting place. Woo-wee! I hope you brought your shouting clothes because that's worthy of shouting on, man. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever 
them that are sanctified, those that are set apart. What does that mean? Those that live really holy, those that tithe a lot, those that don't say swear words? No, those that are set apart because of the sacrifice of Jesus, those who have accepted Jesus, you are now perfect and flawless in the sight of God. Let's back up to Hebrews chapter 9. If you can't tell, ma'am, this, this is what so much of the New Testament about is about. The Apostle Paul, when I went, went through the New Testament after I got this revelation of being perfect in my spirit because of Jesus, the whole New Testament changed for me. I then began to see that the Apostle Paul was really trying to sp spend the majority of his time, one, convincing you that God is no longer mad at you and you no longer have to perform to earn his love or his blessings, that sin is no longer an obstacle in, uh, between you and God. It really never was, uh, but the law magnified sin to break you. But the other thing that Paul is trying to convince people of is you are perfect. And that's evident in his epistles that we're going to get into in a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 12. I mentioned this. Uh, he's talking about, you know, verse 9, for instance, he says, um, which was a figure for the, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices and the goats and the bulls and everything and, and sacrificing animals. It says, they were a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. I want to point out that the Apostle Paul in Hebrews is, is emphasizing the fact, he, hey, those Old Testament sacrifices, they could never make you perfect. Well, what is his point? The new sacrifice of Jesus could make you perfect. That's why he's saying those old things, it's a comparison. Do you see what I'm saying? He's saying those Old Testament sacrifices, they could never make your spirit perfect in the sight of God. Well, why would he say that? It's because he's trying to get to the point of Jesus did that thing. He, in fact, made you perfect in the sight of God by himself. So, uh, I want to skip down to verse 12. He says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place. Talking about Jesus, he entered into the tabernacle in heaven, not, not a human tabernacle pitched with hands that man created and man did. No, it says in a, a, um, Hebrews chapter 8, and it's actually a refer reference to Exodus, when, God, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God showed him a picture of heaven, and he said, I want you to make the tabernacle according to the picture that I showed you, the shadow, the vision that I gave you. But those were all things made with the hands of man. But there's a tabernacle, there's a temple in heaven that was made by God. One is works, one is law, right? But one is grace. It's all completely God. God does it all. Um, aside from man. That's the grace of God, a, a, a one aspect of it at least. And it says, He entered into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. That might not mean much to you because you might not know what redemption is. You know, we kind of have an idea, redemption, you know, being set free. But I, I want to propose this idea to you. If you're over in Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be here. We're, gonna, we're actually gonna, just going to be in the book of Ephesians for a little bit here. So if you want to turn there, feel free or check it out on your phone. 
And uh, by the way, man, I I highly encourage you guys get these scriptures, man. Get these scriptures that uh are talking about you're perfect, you're lovely. They're talking about you're perfect forever. Get them, lay them in front of you, find them in your Bible, mark them, feast your eyes, meditate. You know, um, just you know, repeat them back to Jesus. Uh, uh, see what the Spirit does with them, because this is what's going to set you on a. Uh, this is what I was trying to kind of get at earlier. Finding out that God wasn't mad at me was an awesome revelation. That that was so cool to me. Um, I hadn't experienced that much wrath as a lot of people did, but that was still really encouraging to me. But the thing that really, really sent me over the edge was this revelation of, God, I, I, I'm, I'm perfect to you? I'm perfect to you, Jesus? You know, to this day, I, I've been studying this for probably about a year now, and I'll I'll spend the rest of my life meditating on this. But you know, to this day, that still baffles me. I I believe it, man. I do. I I have seen the goodness of the Lord, and I have seen Jesus and how He thinks I'm perfect. I've seen that, and it, it's honestly, it's transformed my Christian life. I might not understand it, but God doesn't call you to always understand. He just calls you to believe. Ooh, praise the Lord, man. I struggled with this revelation. I struggled with it because I was taught for a long time that um, you need to perfect your spirit uh, or quote-unquote train your spirit. Ministers that I love and hold dear to my heart, and I still listen to today, I don't agree with everything. I really don't agree with a lot that they say now, but one of the things that I was taught was you need to train your spirit. You need to get things on the inside of your spirit. You need to uh, train up the inner man, you know, exercise the inner man. That is not it, folks. You uh, Colossians chapter 2 says uh, Jesus, the, the Godhead, dwells bodily, in Jesus. And then after that, I think it's verse 10 in Colossians 2, it says, and you dwell in him, and you're complete in him, right? You're not trying to get things on the inside of you. You're trying to get things out. This is why the scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? You, you've got the life of God on the inside of you, Christ in you, and, and all the wisdom and knowledge and revelation of Jesus is in your spirit. It's in your belly, you know? Out of the belly flows rivers of living water, John 7, 38. You're trying to get it from the outside in. You're not training your spirit. What you're doing is training your mind to receive. To, you, are, you are learning. Your Christian life is not trying to get blessed. It's not trying to get healed. It's not trying to get your sins forgiven. It's not trying to get an anointing. What it is is you sitting down in a chair and letting Jesus wash your feet because that is how you get clean. I mean, you're clean in your spirit. You're perfect. But that's how you manifest the cleanness, the perfectness. You, let, you behold Jesus. You only focus on Jesus. You focus on his words. He says, I've given you a new name. I've given you a white stone, a.k.a. I've declared you innocent. That is the New Testament. Old Testament, uh, I'm trying to plead, 
plead to God for him to give me something. New Testament, I've already got everything I need. Now I'm just learning how to flow in it, right? That's what the Christian life is. But we were talking about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. We we're talking about it says eternal redemption. Well, what is redemption? Biblical redemption is this right here, Ephesians 1 7. In whom, talking about in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Praise the Lord, man. It says it right there. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. We'll go back to Hebrews 9:12. It says that you have eternal redemption. I, I, I was talking to a manager one time at a bank I used to work at, and this woman grew up in a really twisted denomination that taught her law and works. You know, you can't wear makeup and jewelry, and God's mad at you. And I said to her, I said, the Bible says you're eternally redeemed in your spirit. And I looked at her, I said, what does eternal mean? And she paused and she said, forever. You are forever forgiven. You're forever forgiven. This is the doorway to the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is, this is like you're dipping your toes in the water. There's so much more. There's a waterfall, a waterfall of God's grace and love waiting for you. But this is the open door. You first have to believe that you're eternally redeemed, which means you're eternally forgiven. You're forgiven forever. Once you believe that, God can then convince you, hey, you're perfect in my sight. That's the doorway, and now we're just, we're, we're cruising. We're coasting through the Christian life now, not ever wondering where my position with God is at. Not ever wondering, did I do enough today? Did I pray enough? Did I tithe enough? Did I witness to enough people? God, are you going to cut me off from the vine? No, it says that he lifts up the vines that aren't producing fruit. Excuse me, he lifts up the branches. He lifts up the branches. That's what Iro means, A-I-R-O, Iro. It doesn't, it, that, that word doesn't mean takes away. It means lift up. Check it out in Blue Letter Bible. Go to that website and look for it. You are not, he, he did everything. He did everything. God the Father did everything to get you into the vine. And now he's not going to cut you off because you made a mistake. Because you made every mistake on the, on the planet. That is not what God is about. That is a false gospel. That is, that is wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? Praise the Lord. <laughs> That is, so, so you're, for, you're forever forgiven, and the Bible talks about how you're perfect. In Ephesians, we're still in that um, first chapter. Let's back up here to the third verse. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, he has blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This goes back to what I was talking about. You are not trying to get blessed. You are blessed. Verse 4, this is, this is so key right here. Listen up, people. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Man, he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. I often like to imagine God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit all com communing and having fellowship before even heaven or angels were created. And I love to just, 
I love to imagine them thinking about, wow, Brock is going to be created soon. Wow, we're going to be able to walk and talk with him. Wow, he's going to be our son. We're going to be his father. He's going to be our bride. We're going to be his husband. There's a verse in 1 Chronicles uh, 28 that is so near and dear to my heart for many reasons. And it's, it's David. It's David. And he's about to die. And he's passing on the kingship to his son Solomon. And, and God says, he says, I have chosen Solomon to be my son. And I will be his father. How awesome is that? There's two things going on in that verse. He says, I've chosen him to be my son. You know, when you birth a child, you're in a sense, you're stuck with that child, that child yours. But when you adopt the child, that means you see a kid, you see what he looks like, you see him in all his mistakes, you see him in all his flaws, but yet you still say, I want that child. I choose that child, right? Jesus leaves the 99 and goes for the one. You have... God had 10 coins and he lost one. And it says the woman, when she lost that one coin, it says she got on her hands and knees and she looked for that coin in the dirt. And just because a coin gets dirt on it does not mean that that coin has lost its value. Just because you had sin in your life at one point before you were born again, and just because Sin affects your mind and your body now does not determine your value. You were made in the image and the likeness of God. They came to Jesus and they said, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus said, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And, and Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. Whose image and inscription is on you? If you're a human, you automatically have value because you are made in the image of Elohim, right? Yahweh. You're, you were made in the image of God, and then your spirit was recreated in the image of Jesus. Praise God. So you pick a kid, but then there's another thing that's going on here. He says, not only do I choose him to be my son, he said, and I will be his father. Not only do you choose a son, but you make the decision, I'm going to be their parent. Uh, what does that mean? That means through all their faults, through all their mistakes, through everything they do wrong, I'm still going to be their father. You know, I mentioned the sheep. I mentioned the woman. These are all in Luke 15. And to sum it up, in Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son comes to, to the father, it says the father saw him far off and he ran towards him with compassion. You know, that word ran, it literally means to exert one's own strength. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He ran to him with compassion and then the, and he fell on him and he kissed him. He kissed him. He told him he loved him. He kissed him with the kisses of his mouth. And then the, the son says, Hire me back as a servant. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry I left. I'm sorry I messed up. I'll be a servant. And then the, the father says, no, bring the fatted calf, bring the garment, bring the ring, put it on his pinky. You, you, are, you are mine. The son says, I want to be your servant. But the father says, you cannot be anything else other than my son. You know, me and my wife, we uh, are... 
about to have a son. My wife is pregnant, and, and we're going to have a baby, and it's going to be a boy. I know it is because the Lord told me. And I've thought about how I want my son to understand this, that single truth. It doesn't matter what my son does. It doesn't matter what he does. <laughs> There's nothing he can ever do that will not make him my son. He's my son. He was born from me. He came out of me. I raised him. I've chosen him to be my son, and I've chosen to be his father. That is the love of God. <laughs> Praise Jesus, man. He's chosen us from the foundation of the world that, that we should be what? Holy and without blame before him in love. <laughs> Praise God. Let me ask you this. How are you going to make yourself holy? Is it you making yourself holy? Is it you making yourself without blame? Are you going to do everything right? Are you going to be A, B, and C? No, you can never keep the law. That's a farce. That's false religion. You can never do anything right. You are always sinning at every moment. You're never spending enough time in the Word. You're never praying enough. You're never witnessing enough. You're never tithing enough. You'll never live up to those standards if you're listening. Never. And it's meant to crush you and to kill you, right? Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, the law was meant to shut every mouth. And that's what it does. It shuts you, shuts your mouth, and you're boasting before God because you can't do anything in your flesh. That's what the flesh can produce, but we're not in the flesh. We are now in the spirit. And it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we are holy and blameless. I want to go over here, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It, it's husbands talking about wives, but it's really not about that. It's about us and Jesus. That's the point of it. And he says, husbands, in verse 25, husbands, love your wives even as, meaning in the same way, that Christ loves the church, that's how you love That's how you love it. And how does he do it? It says he gave himself for it. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. What are we going to believe? Are we going to believe what other people say? Are we going to believe what religion says? Are we even going to believe what we say? Are we going to believe Jesus when he says, Thou art all fair, my love. There's no spot in thee. Are we going to believe him when he says, my dove, my undefiled? Is that the reality? Are we perceiving with the eyes of the spirit or the eyes of the flesh? You know, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, uh, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But that word see, it means perceive. That's not a verse talking about heaven in the future, although that's a truth. That's talking about no one can perceive the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You can't understand the thoughts of God unless you're born again. And now we can think the thoughts of God. We can feel the feelings of Jesus right now. Absolutely beautiful, man. But there's a point I'm getting to in Ephesians chapter 5. Now verse 27, it says, That he might present it. Who's doing the presenting? Is it he, us, or is it he, Jesus? It's Jesus. That Jesus might present to himself. He does it. He presents it to himself. What? The church. And how does he present it? 
a glorious church, having spot, have, uh, excuse me, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and blameless and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh. What does that mean? Uh, if my arm was hurting, am I going to slap my arm and tell it how stupid it is? No, that's, that's retarded. That would be lunacy. Jesus, when, 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 when the parts of his body aren't quote-unquote acting right, he doesn't slap it. What does he do? In the, the last part of that verse, verse 29, but he nourishes and he cherishes his body, even as the Lord, the church. That is how Jesus loves. It is not up to us to present ourselves holy and blameless. I hate that doctrine. I hate it. It's horrible. It's works and it's law-based. And I, it is such a Pharisee mindset. I'm going to work and do everything that I can to present myself holy and blameless before the Lord because that's my quote-unquote Christian duty. No, you don't do a thing. Did the disciples wash their own feet? No. And what did they do? What did Jesus say when they wanted to? Peter, right? Lord, don't wash my feet only, but my, but my head and my hands. That is you adding to the finished work of Christ. And what's Jesus say? He says, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Let's just go read it over here. John chapter 13. I just, I just want to read Jesus' reply to this. He that is washed needeth not to wash. Uh, he doesn't have to wash anything but his feet, but is clean everywhere. What does that mean? Jesus was washing the feet. Everything Jesus did will make you clean. The cross will make you clean. If you've accepted Jesus, you are clean. And Ephesians, man, that book's just chock full of wonderful truths like this. Ephesians chapter 1, where we were at, it says right here. Let's peep it real quick. It says, uh, in whom ye also trusted, talking about you trusted in Christ. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So it says that word sealed. And then uh, Ephesians chapter 4 it says, verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 1, says this word sealed too. This word sealed, it means vacuum packed. It means nothing can get on the inside and nothing can get on the outside. Meaning your spirit was sealed, right? God, God recreated your spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if you be in Christ, you are a new creation, a new creature. All the old things have passed away. Behold, only the new remains. The, the, um, if, if this wasn't true, let's put it like this. Many people teach that your spirit can get dirty, but then you got to make it clean, but that's works. If your spirit wasn't sealed, then you, someone might as well kill you before uh, when you get born again because there's no way you're going to live this life without ever messing up again. No, God was a genius. 
this offered such great comfort to me because I came off of doing drugs and having sex and doing blah, 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 blah. When I found out that my spirit was sealed and it was perfect, when I found out, man, I cried. I was delivering pizzas. I can remember the road right now I was driving on. I, I teared up because I, I said, God, you're telling me all that stuff I did. You still preserved me and you still preserved the perfectness within me of Christ. And he said, yes, I did. God is a genius. Think about this. If God was going to set up this 4,000-year plan for Jesus to come, be incarnated, die for your sins, um, suffer all those things for you, and then you're telling me that you getting drunk makes your spirit dirty, maybe loses your salvation to the extreme end, that is just silly. That's a horrible plan. I believe God is way smarter than that. God made provision. He made he made a, a safety net. And obviously, you know, the the way I'm saying this, people are automatically going to go into the whole, well, you're just saying we can go sin. No, you're actually going to sin less because you realize that you are perfect and you're accepting your identity. But we could go on that convo. I've talked about that on this podcast before. I won't really go into it. I think it's in those first two episodes if anyone's interested in that. Man, but you're sealed. You're vacuum packed. Nothing can penetrate your spirit, and, and and your spirit isn't leaking out. The same spirit that you have right now is going to be the same spirit you have for the rest of eternity, man. Praise God. But anyways, we'll go over here to Colossians. My point, my whole point, I talked about a lot of different things, but my whole point was Ephesians chapter 1, verse um, 4, I believe it was. Holy, you're holy without blame. In, a, in, a, in Ephesians um, chapter 5, we looked at that. He presents the church to himself, holy and blameless. You know, I'll just say this last verse in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 24, it says, you got to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That tr you're, you're created righteous, righteous and truly holy, and that doesn't diminish as you mess up and as you sin. That's not that God is smarter than that. He made provision. All righty, Colossians chapter one. This is the same exact point, just in a different book. It says, um, I want to start in verse. Twenty, Colossians one twenty, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, he's talking about he has reconciled all your sin to Jesus, and he's brought you into harmony with himself by taking away the sin problem. Verse twenty one, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled. He's saying your, your works and your old deeds, they don't even matter because he is taking care of the sin problem. Verse 22 is what I want to get to. How's he done this? In the body of his flesh through death. Meaning the effects of sin, which is what? The wages of sin are death. The, the, the payment that was due, if you want to call it like that, uh, sin had to be projected somewhere. Jesus gathered up all sin on himself in his baptism. That's what the baptism of John was, the baptism of sinners. It's a picture of the Old Testament scapegoat. Um, you can go and look that up. I think it's Leviticus 16. 
Jesus gathered up all the sin, and then in his ministry, that's why he can look at people and say, your sins are forgiven, but he did that before the cross. Well, that's because he had to take on the sins. But then three years, man, the, 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 the debt of sin had to be paid. And he's talking about through the flesh. This is why God had to be manifested in a physical body, because uh, in Adam, everyone after Adam, you know, it's kind of like, in the seed of Adam was the rest of humanity. So from Adam to, to Jesus, we had been defined as sinful because of what they'd done. The seed was now sinful. And Jesus has done the exact same thing in the opposite direction. Now in Adam all died, but now in Christ all live. We, the human race has been redefined by the sacrifice of of Jesus. He is the last Adam. That's why he had to come in the flesh because the payment of sin had to be, um, how do you say it? Um, let's see, what's the wording here? The payment of sin had to be almost exposed and it had to be paid in his flesh, meaning his, here we go, his flesh had to suffer the effects of the sin in the spirit. It was manifested in his flesh. So that's what that means, Colossians 1.22, in the body of his flesh through death. And then what? He did that, why? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Woo! Unreprovable. I, I looked up this word a couple weeks ago, and uh, I told my wife, I said, did you know this word unreprovable? Do you know what it means? And she, like a smart Alex, said, without reproof. But I guess I never really considered what the word reproof meant. But the, but the scriptures, and, and this is in other places too in the word, uh, you're unreprovable. What does that mean? That means you are perfect and God cannot, it's, it's, God cannot say anything to your spirit. There's nothing to correct. You are undefiled in the eyes of the Lord. That's crazy, unreprovable, because I grew up in a denomination and I went to a Bible school where it was like, man, God really nailed me on this sin today. And I had never experienced that, so I thought that was weird, but I didn't have a scriptural knowledge yet of how to refute something like that. Um, people get that from John 16, I think 7, the conviction of the Holy Ghost. No, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of how perfect you are. God is trying to not uplift your sin. That's what the Old Testament did. The Old Testament made you sin conscious. That is not what God is doing. God is interested in uplifting your new nature, the undefiled you. And why is that? Um, it's kind of like a parent and a child. I know an old Kenneth Hagin story, man. Thank you, Jesus, for this. There's an old Kenneth Hagin story. This mom came to Kenneth Hagin, senior, and he and she said to him, "Man, my son, he's just wild. He's doing drugs. He never wants to come to church." And then he was like, "Well, what are you doing at home?" And she's like, "Well, I I try to bug him all the time and tell him to come to church and I tell him to stop doing the drugs and staying out so late and doing all this." And Kenneth Hagin, senior, told this woman. He, and and, and I, I don't think maybe he realized that this is what the law does too, but it, this is a great practical example. That mom just telling that kid all the time, you need to stop, you need to do this, you need to do this. It, it, it only intense the situation. 
because Kenneth Hagin told that woman, he said, he said to her, stop, don't say a word to him. Stop mentioning, just ask him how he's doing. Just don't mention a word about anything he's doing. Don't even mention church. Don't mention Jesus, which to a religious mind, that's like, don't mention Jesus. Jesus is what he needs. But the law, man, the law effect is this. If I'm standing in a pulpit and I'm yelling at you, telling you, you better not be thinking about bananas. If you're thinking about bananas, God's going to get you. I hate bananas. You hate bananas. God hates bananas. If I did that for an hour, what do you walk away thinking about? Bananas. You're thinking about bananas, man. That's the old covenant. The old covenant is to, if bananas is sin, God's trying to get you focused on sin so that he can, so that it'll break you. It'll make you see that you need a savior, that you could, man, if these are all the requirements to get to God, I give up. And then God says, bingo, that's what I wanted. You know, so what's the answer? Well, what are you saying, Brock? We can't tell people not to commit adultery. No, the answer, you know, if I'm telling you in a church full of people, don't commit adultery. You better not commit an adultery. Give it a couple months. You have planted seeds of adultery into the heart of your congregation. That's what you've done. If you're a pastor, you're a preacher, and you're preaching that, you are, you are actually, the strength of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The answer isn't don't think about a banana. The answer is think about an apple. Think about Jesus. That is the new covenant. Old covenant, don't think about this, and it's to break you, to shut your mouth. New covenant, hey, Think about Jesus. Behold Jesus. Amen. So it says that he has presented you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. You are without reproof. When you come to Jesus with your mistakes, Jesus says, no, you're perfect. You're lovely. So this beckons the question of ministers and people of God who have experienced well, God really pointed out my sin. No, that is not God. That is your religious conscience. Conscience, whatever you want to call it. That you have trained your mind to believe that's God, but it's not God. That is your mind. The Holy Spirit convicts you of righteousness. That's what it says in John 16, 7. Go look at it. It doesn't say sin. It says he convicts the world of unbelief. Unbelief of what? The unbelief of not believing in Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit isn't concerned with you drinking or smoking or cussing or having sex or doing that. He is not concerned with that. What he's concerned is this. You're, you say you're drunk. The Holy Spirit's not going to come to you and say, Why are you drinking? You sorry sucker, you. You need to be holy. No, no. He looks beyond that. Because the Holy Spirit knows that the only reason you're drinking or doing whatever is because you don't have a revelation of how much God loves you. That is why you are out, uh, outly acting out these things. The heart, in your heart, there is a seed. And all it's doing is manifesting in what? Fear or depression or drunkenness or sex, whatever it is. Now the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, Hey man, uh, he, 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 like I said, he's not saying you need to stop. He comes to you and he, he gently says, Hey man, why are you picking up that bottle instead of picking up me? You know, what's that bottle offering you that I can't offer you? That is the way the Holy Spirit works. It's the Holy Spirit has a positive ministry. 
I know that thought is really radical for some people. They can't take it. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about we're undefiled, we're perfect in the sight of the Lord, and it's all because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, I've already mentioned these scriptures. Uh, well, let's go over here to Isaiah chapter 53. Man, this is getting a little long. I didn't even get to like <laughs> the other half of the stuff I wanted to, but uh, the Lord led it in the direction it needed to go. Well, basically what I just want to talk about is Isaiah 53. Um, I have to be able to prove to you through Scripture that all sins are forgiven and that you are perfect in the sight of the Lord. So the first thing is the sin issue. Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he, talking about Jesus, this is a prophecy, he has bore our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Man, that says all our iniquity, all our sin, all our transgression was, was placed on Jesus. I'm just going to kind of fire off some scripture here. You can go and check these if you want. But in John chapter 12, I want to look at verse 30. It says, Jesus answered and said, he was talking to all these people, and there was a voice from heaven, and, it's, and it said, um, you know, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And some people thought that it was thunder. They didn't even think it was God, you know. I won't get off on that anyways. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So the King James Bible says, I'll draw all men unto me. But the King James um, translator had enough integrity to italicize words when they weren't really in the original Greek. And I understand why they put the words in there because they want it grammatically to make sense, but sometimes the scripture doesn't come out to what it's actually saying. So Jesus, the word men in verse 32 is not there. It says, I, I will draw all men unto me. That word men, it's not there. And this has been preached as, if you just preach Jesus, then all men would be drawn on him. It's not there. What it actually says is, I will draw all unto me. Draw all what? We'll go back to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Whoo-wee. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So he's talking about judgment. And then he says, all will be drawn unto me. All what? All judgment. All judgment has been placed on Jesus. Praise God, man. All judgment has been placed on Jesus. Go over here to Romans chapter 8. We could just we could just study this scripture out more and talk about it more, but I'm on a time frame and all this junk. But uh thank you guys for listening and uh, I believe I'm I'm getting blessed by this and I believe you guys are too. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 it says There is now therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Man, if you're walking after the flesh, a.k.a. 
if you are trying to perceive life by the flesh, you are going to experience condemnation. You're going to see your faults. But if you're seeing in the spirit, the way that God sees you undefiled and perfect, then you're going to have no condemnation. There is no condemnation, no judgment, no punishment to them that are in Christ Jesus. When you mess up, God, God doesn't even flinch. He doesn't even see it. God is a spirit. John 4, 24. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit. They must approach him based off of their identity in the spirit, not in the flesh. In your, but that goes back to people believe their spirits are dirty, but we've kind of already been through all that. Um, you can see, man, there's a lot of uh, religious ideas you have to untangle when teaching some of this stuff. But verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from what? From the law of sin and death. You're free from living under the law off a of performance based with God. He doesn't care how much you prayed. He doesn't care how much you've studied your Bible. doesn't care how much you did this, that, or blah, 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 blah. Nope, you're free from that. And you're free from the law of sin and death. You no longer have to suffer condemnation because you sinned. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, we, in that it was weak through the flesh. This is what I've been talking about. Your flesh, your ability to do something. It could never produce the righteousness of God. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Remember I talked about the flesh of Jesus. He took all sin in his flesh and then he died it away. He died it dead on the cross. He killed it. Verse 4, that he did that, why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When you're walking in the Spirit, all the 613 commandments of God, it's, it, it's like you fulfilled every single last one of them. It's because Jesus did, and he's in you, and God sees you after Jesus. Praise God, man. I want to end with an Old Testament story. It's in Numbers 23, and uh, this is a classic story, kind of really funny, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, Numbers 23, it's the story of uh, Balaam and Balak and Baal, a lot of B names, kind of confusing sometimes. But um, Balak is a king, and Balaam is a, is a prophet of Israel, and Balak is trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. And, and, and when, um, but, but, but he does it three times. And every time uh, Balak wants Balaam to curse Israel, Balaam goes up and they're looking at all of Israel. And, he's, and, and then Balaam blesses them. It's awesome. It's hilarious. And they, they just keep trying to do this. But the first time, I believe it's the first time he blessed them, um, Balaam says, uh, he took up this parable. This is verse 18. And he said, rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and he shall not do? Hath he spoken, and it shall not be made good? Shall not make it good? Verse 20, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Verse 21, this is what we're getting at. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. That's Israel. That's another name for Israel. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, 
and the shout of the king is among them. What? The, this is under the bondage of the law. This is under the old, old covenant law. And it says, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Well, that says God doesn't um, behold iniquity in Jacob. But I'll tell you, folks, I have found some iniquity in Jacob and the children of Israel. But praise God, he, he looked beyond their sin. You see, God was never actually looking at the sin of, of the children of Israel. He was just using the law as an instrument, as a tool to break them of self-righteousness. Because like I said, God looks into the future. Ah, man, I wish I want to get into this, but, but I'm going to get into this on another, another teaching, I promise. But God was able to look at them under the sacrifice of Jesus in the future because they had faith in him. It's, it's righteousness by faith, like Abraham, right? And Noah is what the scriptures say. And it says, God did not beheld any iniquity in Jacob. He, he saw them as his bride without spot, wrinkle, blemish, unreprovable. And you know, people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. God got so mad at the children of Israel. You know, this morning, I read Exodus, thir- uh, Exodus 16, where they, where they whine about not having any bread. Did you know God doesn't get mad in that story? I was taught that he got mad. Go and read that story. Doesn't say God. They, they, Moses and Aaron sometimes got mad in these stories, but God didn't get mad. Uh, they complained they wanted food. He gave them the bread of life. Uh, Exodus chapter 17. They complained they wanted water. God didn't get mad. He gave them water. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says those are pictures of Christ, the rock they drank from Christ. Numbers chapter 21, they didn't get mad. Uh, uh, they, they, they complained again and again. God didn't get mad at them. Moses was mad, but God gave them what they asked for. The only time God got mad and angry with the children of Israel uh, in those first five books of the Bible was when they denied the bread, which was Jesus right? And, and, you know, New Testament, John three thirty six. he that believes on the Son is not condemned. He that doesn't believe on the Son has the wrath of God on him already. Well, God's not mad at sinners, but there's going to come a time when the church is raptured up, and the wrath of God is going to be released, and the wrath of God will be imputed in eternity. Wow, that uh, that was a mouthful. God has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. You know, that was somebody under the law. How much you, under the new covenant with Jesus, his son in you, and you are now a daughter, of, of, you are now a son of his, you are now a bride, you are now a lover, you, you are beautiful in his sight. You, he, All he does is look at you and he's his his spirit in you, your own spirit, your one spirit. He looks at you and he says, you're altogether lovely. There's no spot in you. You're my love. You're my dove. You're my undefiled. He says, my undefiled's but one. There's no one like you. He seeks intimacy with you because you're perfect. He's made you perfect in your spirit. And as soon as we believe we're perfect in the spirit, that truth will rise up out of our spirits and start manifesting itself. In the health of our flesh, it will manifest itself in our minds, in every situation in life. All we do is believe. Old covenant is do, new covenant is we just believe. Praise God. Well, thank y'all for listening. I absolutely loved doing this. 
Um, let me know your responses, man. Let me know if this just affected you and changed you. Thank you for listening. Y'all be blessed.